I am so happy to be with you, happy that we can gather as a church family, but also uh, gather back and uh, open the word to Second Kings. It's been quite a while since we've been in this particular study, uh, but I'm excited to get back into it this, on this week. And I will be, I'll confess with you, I'm going to do something a little bit ambitious uh, even for uh, me, which is that we're going to try and cover all 44 verses in this chapter, chapter 4. So uh, don't worry, there's food. So I planned it really good. Uh, so you can stick around and there's food afterwards. So even if I go a little long, no, I'm going to try and we're going to try and move through this efficiently. But uh, I just couldn't help but escape as I was studying this particular chapter, how each of these scenes, though they're really different, though they uh, they show a, a lot of different ways in which Elisha meets these people's needs, um, there is a really strong, we could say, through line or thread that ties them all together, and I think in a very profound way, which I hope to draw your attention to. It's not by accident that the historian has sort of uh, sort of collected all of these tales together regarding and surrounding this prophet Elisha and sort of the, the feats and the miracles that he's able to do. If you read all 44 verses, it's really just uh, 44 verses of miracles that Elisha is able to accomplish. And yet these spectacular events, this isn't just an accidental thing that he puts them all together. I, I think it's very intentional that all of these, though they don't really at first have a very uh, strong connecting point, I think it's very intentional of not just the historian but the Holy Spirit to put them together in one singular narrative to, I think, both reveal the nature of Elisha's ministry as a prophet, but also, I would say, even, even more so to reveal exactly who Yahweh is. We've been examining, especially in this series, through the kings, how exactly Yahweh shows himself as the true king of kings over all of the disaster, over all the distress and the strife and the historical events that come about in Israel's lives. Yahweh is king. I think the most important question we can ask when we are trying to understand any text of scripture is just that. What does this show me about God? The whole Bible is a revelation of God's son, Jesus Christ. So what does this, what does this do in, in showing us about who God is and what he's, what he's like and what he values and what he does? I think as with the rest of scripture, you're going to find that this particular chapter, chapter 4 of 2 Kings, really shows you how God meets sufferers in their suffering. He's not afraid of it. He's not indifferent towards the things that cause us sorrow, our pain, our loss, our grief. He is not standing on the sidelines waiting for us to get better. This whole chapter shows us how he meets us in those particular moments and seasons. But I think what is most amazing about this particular chapter is, is, is especially if we view it from the perspective of the sufferers themselves. Because what, what does suffering look like for you and me? It looks annoying. It looks grievous. It looks tiresome. It looks uh, very much like an interruption. It looks like nothing is going according to plan. What does the suffering look like from our point of view? And what is the type of God that we find there in that suffering? I think this chapter shows us exactly that. So I want to take you through these four scenes. 
There's basically four scenes in this chapter which I think show us uh, suffering from our perspective. And it also shows us the type of God that we find in those moments. So first of all, notice in this first couple verses, I think we find here suffering is hopeless. Suffering is hopeless. The historian thrusts us into this action, we could say, into the middle of this story that's going on about this quote-unquote certain woman who suddenly finds herself a widow. Verse 1, now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditors come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. Her late husband was apparently studying under Elisha in his prophetic ministry. He was a faithful man, a devout man, but who had also amassed a significant debt. Such that the creditor, upon this man's death, comes calling to settle all of his accounts. Which, if you read the law, you can go back into Leviticus, you can read this. It's in the law. It meant that he could claim this widow's sons as his slaves. This was his right to do. He wasn't acting unjustly, so to speak. He was acting according to the law. But obviously, this woman is feeling no small amount of worry and anxiety. She is very much at her wit's end. This is a hopeless situation if there ever was one. She has not only lost her spouse, her means of livelihood in those particular days. She is now also standing to lose both of her sons too. Their very support. The, the thing that she could stand on is being threatened to be pulled right out from under her. Which would basically leave her on the streets. Her future looks grim, to say the least. It looks hopeless. She is suffering a very hopeless situation. She's telling Elisha all about this. And Elisha said to her, verse 2, said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in thine house? And she said, Thy handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. She has basically nothing. That jar of oil that is sitting on the shelf is really just a token. It's a symbol of just how desperate she was. That's all of her resources. She doesn't have anything with which to sort of buy more time or barter her way out of this debt so she can save her sons from living a life of slavery. And yet all she has is this jar of oil. Her resources are that scarce. But Elisha says... Tells her to go out, go borrow pots from all of her neighbors. Go out everywhere. Start borrowing all these pots from everywhere you can find them. And after she's collected them, she's to bring it back to her house. And she's to take that single jar of oil and just start filling all of the other pots. And that's exactly what she does. Look at, then he said, verse 3, go borrow the vessels from abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow, not a few. Don't be skimpy. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and thou shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. Amazing. There's going to be leftovers, Elisha promises her. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and her sons. So she goes about and starts doing this very preposterous sounding instruction. What would be your first reaction if this guy says, go and borrow these things and you're going to be able to fill as many vessels as you can find. You're going to be able to fill with that one jar of oil. One carton of milk is going to fill all of these buckets. (laughs) 
It seems kind of ludicrous. It seems as if he's talking out of his head. But she does it. She goes and she starts borrowing in in verse 5, who brought the vessels to her and she poured out. She's pouring. She's pouring that oil into jars. And the more jars she brings, the more oil she's able to pour. Until eventually she just runs out of pots. Verse number 6. And it came to pass when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there is not a vessel more. We ran out. And the oil, it says, stayed or it stopped. <laughs> it's an amazing scene of provision. Because notice then verse 7, that she came and told the man of God. And he said, go, sell the oil and pay thy debt and live thou and thy children of the rest. Elisha has now given this woman We could say liquid hope. (laughs) From a hopeless situation in which her whole life was about to be taken away from her. Here now, she has enough to pay off her creditor and then some. Enough to live off of the rest, as it says. She's brought from the edge of that hopeless situation to having that hope fill her home. And how fitting how fitting, isn't it, that that, that, Im- that image, that emblem of her desperation, that jar of oil has been turned into her deliverance by none other than Yahweh himself. That oil goes from being a sign of just how scant her resources are to now being her, uh, her livelihood as she lives off the rest with her sons. Isn't that what God does? Just like this woman's hopelessness and emptiness is filled with God's hope. Yes, our emptiness and hopelessness is filled with his. That's what he does for each and every one of our situations that appear as if there's no hope of them getting better. He fills them with his hope. And no, perhaps it's not as quote unquote miraculous as an endless pot of oil. If you have that in your home, let me know. That'd be cool. I'd like to see that. But the hope that God gives us is nonetheless, I would say, astounding. It should make us be amazed. Because you know what it is? He's given us his son. That's the hope that fills our hopelessness, that fills our emptiness, our jars that are so destitute of anything, our lives that are so empty. He fills with his son. He gives us that infinite outpouring of his Holy Spirit who points us to his son who delights to give us his hope. Yeah, our hopeless suffering sometimes feels that way. But with Yahweh's word, it is never hopeless. When has a hopeless situation ever stopped Yahweh from acting? Never. Not for this woman and not for you and I either. Our hopelessness does not stop what he plans to do in and through us. Suffering is hopeless. Number two, I want you to notice, look it down in verse eight. Suffering is ruthless. Suffering is ruthless. Because there's a very long story. This particular narrative is going to take us through most of the chapter. 
But it's a very uh, fascinating account, and I, I hope you can stick with me, because the historian switches gears, and he tells us about this, quote-unquote, great woman from Shunem. Look at verse 8. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where a great woman, an important woman, she was a powerful figure, and she constrained him to eat bread. And so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. Whoever she was, she was prominent. She had influence. And she constrains this man of God, the prophet, to, to come in and dine with her and her family. But it even goes beyond that, as we're told in verse 10. She even asks her husband, and they make an addition onto their house specifically for Elisha. They make him a room. So whenever he would come, whenever he would be able to, to pass by and take leave, he would have a room where he could stay in their own home. So she does this. And Elisha is... Perhaps amazed by the kindness showed towards him. He is a man of Yahweh. Which in those days was was not a very popular person to be representing. But it says in verse 11. And it fell on a day that he came thither. And he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to Gehazi his servant. Call this Shunammite woman. And when he had called her she stood before him. And he said say now unto her behold thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? What is thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. Basically, he's asking, is there anything I can do to return this kindness that you've showed towards me? Is there anything I can repay you with, so to speak? And she says, no, basically nothing. I dwell among my own people. I, I have what I need. And yet, that's not entirely true. Because notice verse 14. And he said, what is then to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, verily, she hath no child, and her husband is old. This woman, whoever she was, she was barren. She was unable to conceive, unable to bear a child, which, as you perhaps know, this was a very big social stigma in this particular day. Not able able to be uh, uh, bear a child for your home was essentially, we could say, the scarlet letter of the Old Testament for many women. And her husband's age wasn't helping. He was well beyond the age of virility. So there was basically no chance that this woman was ever going to conceive. That was basically her lot. And you can see she has kind of accepted it. She doesn't even mention it to the prophets. She doesn't even mention what her situation is. Yet Gehazi sees it and he mentions it to Elisha. And that's when Elisha gives this woman an amazing promise. Watch. And he called her and said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. And he said, about this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, nay, my lord. Thou men of God, do not lie unto thy handmaid. She's shocked by this word that comes to her. She has never perhaps given this much thought in later years. Maybe she's later in her life and she's kind of put away this thought for, for several years. And now it's all coming back up. All the emotions uh, that this would bring back up for this woman. Don't lie to me. Don't play with my emotions, man of God. And then look what happens. Verse 17. And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her according to the time of life. It happens all exactly as he said it would. <laughs> By the way, this is just 
an amazing little pattern you can you can read in the scriptures how God loves to give barren women the ability to conceive it happens all the time it happens to um Sarah, and we can go to Samson's mom, Manoah. We can go to Hannah in 1 Samuel. You can go to Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. There's uh, over and over again. It's a pattern. God takes what is destitute and desperate, and he brings his life into it by the power of his word. Exactly what happens here for this woman. She's given the amazing gift of being able to bear a son. And all of that is just introduction to this woman's story. Because watch what happens. Look at verse 18. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father, to the reapers. He's out in the field, working the fields with his dad. And he begins complaining about a headache. Something has struck him. It says in verse 19, he said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to a lad, carry him to his mother. His dad sends him home. His headache, perhaps, will just go away. That's what he's thinking. And then look at verse 20. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. Amazing turn of events that should stun us and should surprise us. That miracle boy is snatched away from that mom. Just imagine this Shunammite woman's devastation. She is totally destroyed. That miracle boy that she perhaps prayed for when she was younger, that she had given up hope of ever having, has now been given to her and then just as quickly taken away from her. She takes the body in verse 21. She takes it up to Elisha's room, lays the body on the bed, and then she's beginning to make arrangements, making plans to go see Elisha. Apparently he is camping out at Mount Carmel. So she's got to go see him. Look at verse 22. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither the new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. Then she saddled an ass and said to her, Sir, Drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. Basically, put the pedal to the metal. (laughs) Get to the man of God as quick as you can. So now when I'm driving, I say, slack not thy riding when we have to go somewhere fast. It's the King James Version of get there quickly. Hurry up. And she feels the urgency of the situation. And notice, she's running to the man of God. And when she gets to him, she falls on her knees she falls to her knees in just pure anguish. She's clutching at the feet of the prophet. So she went, verse 25, and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away. And the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her. And the Lord hath hid it from me and hath not told me. He notices her soul. As she comes closer, he sees, yes, her words might have been saying, I'm fine. But her body is saying something different. Her appearance might have 
given it away, that her soul internally was crushed. And Elisha is perplexed. Why did not God show this unto me? And then she says, look at verse 28. Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? She could have never imagined the miracle of having a child. But she also could have never imagined that that miracle would be so soon taken out of her arms. And basically, her cry here is, it's hearkening back to what she said before. And basically, she's saying, I would have rather not have a son at all than have one and have him taken away from me. Why did you do this? Elisha, did you tell you not to lie to me? (laughs) She's devastated. And Elisha's about to send his servant Gehazi to go forward and, and, and go to the woman's house. And Elisha and, and the woman are following behind him. Elisha sends Gehazi to the, to the house and he goes to the boy with this staff of Elisha to heal the young boy, but he can't do it. So finally Elisha arrives. Look at verse 32. Notice how Elisha meets the needs of this lifeless child. Watch. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead and laid upon his bed. And he went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands and stretched himself upon the child. And the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes and he called Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she was come in unto him, he said, Take up thy son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. Amazing. The prophet of God enters the room and he stretches himself out over this boy. You might immediately think, or I hope you do, perhaps it has left your mind. First Kings 17, we have an exact same, almost replica scene of this. With Elijah doing the same thing to another boy who had fallen ill and died. Stretching himself over this sufferer. I think it's amazing that Elisha does this. Especially that close contact that he makes with that lifeless boy. And yet then he raises him. Or we should say the power of Yahweh raises him. And the mother, you can imagine, was elated. Suffering sometimes is ruthless, is it not? It seems to have no mercy. It seems to have nothing in the way of couching just how devastating it is. And sometimes it can feel just like this woman that God lied to us. Have you ever felt like that before? God, why did you lie to me? Why would you allow this this gift to be given to me, to be received, and then you would yank it away? That's what this woman feels like. She feels like God lied. Did you notice that this woman's suffering occurs after a gift from God? (laughs) It's after she receives this blessing that all of this pain begins happening. And yes, she had dealt with the pain of barrenness her whole life. 
But perhaps she had given herself over and resigned herself to that fate. Enough to where he could say, I dwell among my own people. I have what I need. And yet, here comes Elisha, giving her this gift of a son. And yet, now all the devastation happens. You can see her train of thought. Why would you do that? Why would you lie to me? I think all of this shows us. Shows us the type of God that we have. He's a God of giving and receiving, yes. He's a God who is sovereign over each and every one of our little moments. And yes, even our ruthless suffering is no match for the God who, some, who comes so close to us in that ruthless suffering that he touches our hands and our mouth and our feet. You see, just like in 1 Kings 17, and just here as in 2 Kings 4, Where we have a man of God stretching himself out over those who are suffering. It's indicative of what Yahweh does for each and every one of us in his son Jesus Christ. Who comes and yes, so identifies with those who are suffering. And yet we could say those who are dead. That he takes that death upon himself. That's what Elisha is here doing. Stretching himself over the boy is indicative, is symbolic of him taking on the boy's death and wishing, praying that he could give him his life. And how fitting is that? That that is exactly what God does for each and every one of us. Our suffering, our anguish, our agony, our grief, our pain, our loss. He knows. And he doesn't just know it. He's taken it. He's felt it. All the barbs that you feel. All of the, uh, all of the anguish that you feel deep in your soul. God has taken it. He's taken it as his own. It says in Isaiah 53, that beloved chapter, that it says that he was acquainted with our grief. Basically, in Christ, he was introduced to our suffering, to our sorrow, to the ruthlessness of sin. Sometimes suffering is ruthless, and it seems It seems as if God lied, and yet all through it all, God is saying, I am the one who meets you in this ruthless season. He comes in and heals this boy, and he comes into our lives, and he gives us his mercy. Precisely because Yahweh is unafraid of suffering. Just like this man of God, he identifies with sufferers. He was named among the transgressors, it says in Isaiah 53. He was counted among the wicked. He was one who was accused of all these things. He has felt all of that suffering for each and every one in this room. It's the suffering that he had to be baptized with. Remember when he's talking to the apostles in the Gospels? And they're talking about how Jesus is telling him, you don't know the baptism that I have to be baptized with. You don't know what's lying ahead of me. And he's referencing, he's alluding to the cross. And I think it's indicative of just this. The baptism that Jesus was baptized with was a baptism of this world's sin. Ruthless suffering included. 
And he took all of that on his own shoulders. Took all of that in his own body. Suffering can sometimes appear hopeless. And it can appear ruthless. But thirdly, suffering can appear senseless. Look at verse 38. Because... We move from those two scenes, this, this scene of this widow who's about to lose her life, this scene of this new mom who has this son die and then be brought back to life, to a scene revolving suffering, revolving around a pot of soup. The stakes seem very different, as you'll see. Notice verse 38. And Elijah came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth, there was a famine in the land. And the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said unto his servants, Set on the great pot, and see the pottage for the sons of the prophets. This famine has devastated the land, such that Elisha and all of his students, they're feeling its effects. They're feeling hungry. They're feeling out of sorts. And one of the students, he has the bright idea to venture out, and he's going to gather herbs for the soup that he's preparing back home. Look at verse 39. And one went out into the field to gather herbs, and found a wild vine, and gathered thereof wild gourds, his lap full. And it came and shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not. You can kind of put yourself in this chef's shoes, we could say. It's a famine. Things are, are thin. Resources are scant. We are not making elaborate meals. And he comes out and he finds these wild gourds on this vine. You can think of what he's thinking. This is going to be amazing. I can make a feast for all my friends. I can give them something to boost their spirits. It's a a, a feast in the midst of famine. That's what he's thinking. But little did he know. As it says, he knew them not. He didn't know that he had just jeopardized all of his brothers. Notice, they begin eating, verse 40, so they poured out for the men to eat. And it came to pass, as they were eating of the potters, that they cried out and said, O thou man of God, there is death in the pot. (laughs) And they could not eat thereof. These wild gores, whatever they were, were not meant to be consumed in the amount that he was making these men consume them because he had filled the pot with them. (laughs) And it didn't take long for all these students of Elisha to begin noticing this, the taste is off. Something's, something's different about this. It's not too much salt. There's something else in this thing that's making it bad. They start gagging. They start coughing. They start choking. There's death in the pot, which sounds like something Gordon Ramsay would say. But he's, they're saying, look at this. We can't eat this. You can imagine now. Imagine then the scene. He hasn't just ruined a meal for everyone. He's put their lives in danger. Both things are devastating. He's almost poisoned all of his brothers. And he's ruined a meal in the midst of a famine. <laughs> you can imagine that that dining hall wasn't very, <laughs> wasn't very friendly to him after that. But watch the man of God. Verse number 41. But he said, Elisha. Then bring meal, bring some flour. And he cast it into the pot and he said, pour out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Fascinating. Elisha just says, bring me a cup of flour. And he flings the flour in there. And then he says, pour it out. And I imagine some of the guys being, what? It's just flour. 
There was no like poof and there was no magic vapor to make people think that the pot had somehow changed its substance. It was just flour that just made it a little bit thicker. <laughs> and he says, pour it out. And they eat. And it says, there was no harm. Harm is a really interesting word because it doesn't just mean something that's negative. It's, it literally means evil. <laughs> The flower had taken the evil out of that stew. And again, what do we make of this? This seems like a very innocuous sort of throwaway story about, about Elisha and the things that he can do. Where he can take flour. He had taken salt in the previous chapter and healed water. Now he can take flour and heal some soup. So he's pretty good in the kitchen, I guess. I don't know. But what do we make of this? There's no... Maliciousness. There's no inherent evil. The stakes are a lot lower. The scene is just basically almost accidental suffering. And I was thinking that, isn't that the most bitter form of suffering though? The kind that seems like a sheer accident. The suffering that comes about in our lives that doesn't necessarily have someone that we can blame, that we can hold uh, uh, to account. The suffering that is senseless. Imagine what would have happened if all these sons of the prophets had fallen ill and died or uh, fallen ill in some way that would leave them incapacitated for a while. It would appear entirely senseless. It was just a bowl of soup. Maybe you can think of a moment in your life that appears entirely senseless. It appears entirely like this event, this ordeal happened by accident. God, why would you let this happen? It's just a bowl of soup. It's just a car accident that was on the highway. Why would you take these people away? God, why would you let this happen? It's, I think, to show us what God promises us. That all of the evil that we see and hear about and feel, even that, even the accidental almost suffering, God is going to take away out of this world. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, the same word for harm is used there too. And it comes in a beloved passage when the prophet Isaiah is talking about the root of Jesse that's going to come. Which is a prophecy of the Messiah, of Christ. And how he's going to do all of well, Let me just read it. Isaiah chapter 11. I'll just read what he says. Because I think this is so amazing how God promises that yes, even our senseless suffering is going to be reversed. Notice Isaiah 11, look at verse 6. This is, what, this is what this Messiah is going to do. And the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and the little child shall leave them. The peace that's going to come about when this root of Jesse appears. And the cow and the bear shall feed, and the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. And then shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, 
For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They shall not hurt. Same word as back in 2 Kings 4 for harm. There shall be no more evil in all my holy mountain. When I reign, this root of Jesse, Jesus, the Messiah, the king of kings is declaring, when I am reigning, all of this senseless suffering is going to be away. All the harm and the hurt and all of those horrid stories that we hear about, about these accidents happening. These senseless stories of suffering. All of that is gone. All of that is reversed by this one who comes. This one who comes in. Who's thrust into our world like flour in a pot. This Messiah who comes into our world. He takes all of it away. He absorbs all of the evil in his own body. And he says to us, there shall be no more hurt. I look forward to that day. I look forward to the day when there's no more hurt. When all the tears are wiped away because, yes, we we feel the pain of loss. Or, yes, we feel all of the accidental almost suffering that happens in our lives. All the mistaken suffering that happens in our lives. All of those tears that are shed for that, God takes away. Oh, I'm so looking forward to that. Suffering can appear hopeless. Suffering can appear ruthless. Suffering can appear senseless. And lastly, and I'll, I'll, I'll hasten through this. Suffering can appear nameless. We get to the last scene, verses 42 through 44. And there's a theme that I think has been curious to notice throughout this whole chapter. I don't know if you caught it, but for whatever reason, the historian rarely mentions people by name throughout this whole chapter. And in fact, the person's name who appears the most is actually Elisha's servant, Gehazi. His name appears roughly seven times throughout the whole chapter. With Elisha being called the man of God 11 times. He's not called by his name. He's called just the man of God. His name only appears six times. But there's not a lot of names. There's the widow with the oil. There's the Shunammite woman and her husband and her son who dies. And the sons of the prophets. There's not a lot of names in this chapter. And notice even in this closing little story in verses 42 through 44. There's no names at all actually. Notice what happens. And there came a man from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and full ears of corn and the husk thereof. And he said, give unto the people that they may eat. So this man is coming, coming from a different region, coming from beyond. And he's coming to Elisha with this first fruits offering, we might say. Which, if you're familiar with the law, you would know that this was supposed to go to the temple, right? This was supposed to be an offering given to the priests. That's what the law says. But again, notice where he is coming from, Baal, Shalisha. A place that's riddled, that's filled with Baal worship. And so this man, seeing as he is not a Baal worshiper himself, he takes it... And he heads to where he knows Yahweh is worshipped. He takes it to Elisha. Not a priest, but a prophet. (laughs) But he takes it 
to God. It's interesting that this man of God feels the burden to obey Yahweh such that he almost disobeys, quote, the letter of the law to obey the spirit of the law. Interesting, I find. Apparently, as God said to Elijah, there is a faithful remnant in Israel. There's still people that are serving my name, and here is one of them. But Elijah tells Gehazi, uh, give this offering to the people that they may eat. Notice what Gehazi says to him, verse 43. And his servitor said, what should I set before this? What should I set this before a hundred men? How do you expect me to do that, Elisha? This is a very meager meal. A hundred men and all of their wives and children are not going to be able to eat from only 20 loaves of barley. Come on. What are you expecting me to do here? How am I supposed to feed all these people? And the man of God, verse 43, calmly just gives his instructions again. But notice he includes the promise that not only will everyone eat their fill, there's going to be leftovers at the end of it. Notice. And he said again, give the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord. They shall eat and shall leave thereof. There's going to be leftovers and that's exactly what happens. So he said it before them and they did eat and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. A hundred or so men and their wives and their children, they all eat from this scant little offering of 20 loaves and a couple ears of corn. It's miraculously multiplied so that everyone has their fill and everyone has leftovers to take home. Everyone gets a little Tupperware box to go back to their homes later. It's awesome. And you should probably perhaps be thinking, I've heard this story before, and you have, except it's been with Jesus and 5,000 people, not just a couple hundred the Christocentric, we could say, alarm bells for me are just going off crazy here in this little story. As Elisha feeds people, multiplies an offering to feed a crowd. It's indicative of what Christ would later do in the Gospels. But regardless, did you notice there's no names here in this little story? Gehazi's just referred to as the servitor, the servant and such that he is doubting the ability of Elisha to do anything in this moment. What do you expect me to do? I think there's a way in which suffering does that to us. It, it can level us. It can put us all on the same playing field, we might say. Suffering is indicative of being human. It's not, it's not somehow abnormal. It's what makes us who we are. We all have trials and tribulations. And here in this, this very chapter, you can just think about there's no safeguard against suffering. Even if you hail from a faithful household that always goes to church. Even if you are, like the Shunammite woman, hospitable to a man of God. Even if you are one of the sons of the prophets. Even if you are Elisha's right hand man. Suffering can afflict anyone. Suffering is nameless. It can affect Joe Schmo and Bill Gates exactly the same. It doesn't care who you are. Suffering doesn't take names and, and treat different people differently based on who they are. It's nameless. And it can also make us feel as nameless also because it can make us feel as though no one knows us. 
can make us doubt God's power. It can make us doubt God's presence. Have you ever felt like that? That you're suffering namelessly. No one knows what I'm going through. No one understands my situation. No one can even understand my predicament. We are alone. I'm suffering by myself. I'm nameless. A ship lost at sea. A person lost in the woods with no flashlight. No way to get out. No way to signal SOS. That's how suffering can make us feel. Can it not? Yet all of that, all of that is wholly untrue. Suffering, yes. In this present life, life we could say after Genesis 3, it takes on many different forms. As we've seen in this chapter, right? It doesn't always hit us the same way. Suffering is very divergent. It hits us differently and we are affected differently by it. Suffering is not a one-size-fits-all sort of deal. And yet, despite all of that, there's one who knows you. You are not nameless in your suffering here this morning. Because there's one who knows you by name. That's what Yahweh says to us throughout his word. He knows you and he calls you by name. He knows you so much that he knows how many hairs you have left on your head. That's how much he knows you. You might feel as though people don't know you. But there's one who does. And it's Yahweh. The God of all things, the creator, the restorer, the redeemer, the one who rules and reigns over the galaxies, who holds all of those star systems that we have no idea how they exist and what exists on them. He holds all of them in the balance and he knows you by name. In the palm of your hand, of his hand, that's where you are. That's where you reside. And as Pastor Nathan spoke about a couple weeks ago, nothing can take you out of it. It's a hand that's secure. It's a hand that has its grip on you that you cannot wiggle your way out of. You are not nameless to this father. You are not nameless to this one who knows you in your pain, in your agony, in your grief. See, that's the beloved thing that I see in this particular chapter, but all through the Bible. God sets up his office, we could say, to do his work when we're at the end of our rope, when we're at our wit's end. Whether it be suffering that comes namelessly or ruthlessly or hopelessly or senselessly. God positions himself right there when we're at the end of all of our hope of giving up. He says, I am your hope. I am your wisdom. I am your mercy. I am your father. What a beloved thing. A beloved promise. That we don't have a God who shuns and shies away from all those those dark things, those troublesome things. As we sang about, I must tell Jesus because we can't bear it alone. He says, I want to take them. I am your father. I am Yahweh. I am the one who has already overcome the world. 
Remember that promise that he gives to his apostles? You don't have to turn there, but just I'm going to read that promise and then we'll close. John 16, verse 33, is this wonderful, amazing word from Christ to his disciples. And he says, I've spoken these things unto you that ye might, ye might have peace. In the world, ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I won't lie to you. I'm not going to be like one of those seed offering preachers who says, if you just give a little bit in the offering plate back there, you won't have any problems. As we can see, that's not true. Suffering sometimes happens after blessing. I'm not going to lie to you and say if you walk out this door, something might occur that's unexpected, senseless even. But what I am here to tell you is that you have not just a father, you have a brother. What does Christ say? He is the one who sticks closer than a brother, who is with you in your suffering, whatever it may look like. Whatever your tribulation is, Jesus has already taken it. Jesus has already paid for it. Jesus has already overcome it. Whatever it is, he has overcome the world on your behalf. He's not a fair weather friend who's only there when it's sunshine and sparkling out and everything is joyous and happy and rainbows and unicorns. Jesus is your friend for the valley of the shadow of death. Your ruthless suffering, he is there. Your senseless suffering, he is there. Your hopeless suffering, he is there. And he calls you by name. This morning I urge you, I petition you. Fall in the arms of this God. This Yahweh who meets sufferers right where they are. Let us pray.